0: This podcast is recorded and produced on Gadigal land as well as other parts of Australia. In the spirit of reconciliation, Women's Agenda acknowledges the traditional custodians of country nationwide and their connections to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to elders past and present and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. You're listening to Fertility Unfiltered, a Women's Agenda special podcast series supported by Genea Fertility. Through this series, we aim to break down common misconceptions, shatter stigmas and provide a platform for those whose voices have been silenced. We'll challenge society's limited understanding of fertility, amplifying stories that celebrate the beauty of diverse paths to parenthood. I'm your host, Tala Lambert. As a same-sex or gender-diverse couple, there are a number of different ways to have your own baby. With these options come a unique set of decisions and challenges, but they can all lead to making that dream of having a family come true. I'm Tyler Lambert, Editor-in-Chief at Women's Agenda, and I've been speaking to some of Australia's leading fertility specialists to find out what you need to know when planning for a baby. Today you'll hear from Dr. Tween Lowe at world-leading fertility clinic, Genea Fertility, Janaya Fertility is driven by the fact that no matter the genetic lottery someone has won or who they love, no one should miss out on becoming a parent. In this episode, Dr. Lowe will share what options there are to getting pregnant as a gender diverse or same-sex couple, important discussions to have early on and how to plan financially. New mums Alex and Charlotte will also share what they've learned from navigating the healthcare system as a lesbian couple, how they selected a sperm donor and finally had their baby.
1: Well we'd been together for about four years when we had the discussion about wanting to start a family and thinking into the future. Um, Maybe three. Maybe three yeah Yeah. maybe somewhere between that three and four year mark and I think we knew that the road ahead would probably take us a bit longer given that we're a same-sex couple and we had to plan things and make sure that we knew what direction we wanted to go in in terms of a known donor, an anonymous donor. So we had the conversation earlier than when we would have wanted to start trying. And we were lucky because we were able to find a lot of information online through Facebook groups.
2: Yeah. So I joined a Lesbian Parents Australia Facebook group and I kind of put forward our situation that we were a lesbian couple with a known donor and where should we go? And we were really lucky that, you know, someone on there um, recommended RPA because we had a known donor, we could go through public
0: health. Talking to other same-sex or gender-diverse couples who have recently had kids can be very insightful. What can also help with this research is to prepare some questions and speak to trusted experts in the field. Podcast series like Fertility Unfiltered are a good starting point because you'll hear from a range of specialists as well as people like Alex and Charlotte who share the steps they needed to take to have their baby. When planning for a baby as a same-sex or gender-diverse couple, Dr Lowe at Genea Fertility says there are a number of options to consider.
3: I suppose for same-sex female couples, the first question that we ask is who's planning to be pregnant? Whose eggs are we using to create the pregnancy and who is going to be carrying the pregnancy. So the fertility treatment options can therefore range from accessing a sperm donor and then some people might like to keep it really low key and doing ovulation tracking and home insemination to going down the more formal route of using a fertility clinic to do donor insemination, which is still a very safe and effective way of achieving a pregnancy and finally doing IVF if the attempts of inseminations were unsuccessful. There are also a couple that want to look at reciprocal IVF. That means that one of the women would like to use her eggs to create the embryo but then the other partner wants to carry the pregnancy and therefore we would create the embryo and then transfer the embryo into the other partner. So there are sort of different combinations to achieve a family that way. Sometimes one of the women is younger and therefore she has got more robust eggs that create stronger embryos, but the older female has more urge to actually be the one that carries the pregnancy and so that might be the option that they choose. It is quite common, it is the most expensive way of doing it but it is attractive for quite a lot of same-sex female couples. Obviously there are also the less invasive way where each of the female might carry their own pregnancy as in using their own eggs for insemination and then conceiving through intrauterine insemination. And then when she has had a baby, the other woman will then be her turn to do that. For same-sex male couple, the first question therefore that we ask then is, do we have an egg donor to help the couple to create the pregnancy? The boys have got an extra hurdle because they also need to find a surrogate to to carry the pregnancy. So those are the two main hurdles that we have to overcome. And following that, again, it's doing IVF to create embryos. Again, the decision has to be made as to whose sperm are we using. And after creating the embryos, we also need to then go through the process of surrogacy before the pregnancy can happen. So that can be a more prolonged process. Finally, for the gender diverse people, for example, the transgenders or the transsexuals, depending on the situation, whose eggs are we using, whose sperm are we using, whose uterus are we using, all these things need to be sorted out. But it can all happen through IVF.
0: Whatever the sexual orientation or gender identity of a person, there is a key factor that will determine how successful fertility treatment is, the age of eggs and sperm. There's more information on this and other common causes of infertility in episodes two and three of this series. But today, Dr. Lowe is going to dive a little deeper into why age matters when trying to get pregnant as a same-sex or gender-diverse couple.
3: The main determining factor is the age of the woman. So the younger the woman, the higher the pregnancy rate. So if you are less than 30 years old, you have got a high chance of success and that would be the same for same-sex couples and heterosexual couples. So the younger you are, the better. If you are just doing insemination at home or through the clinic, The pregnancy rate is quoted as around 20% per month. So every month we've got 20% chance of conceiving, but that 20% drops down as we get older. So by the time we get into our mid-30s, the success rate is now only about 10%. IVF, again, depends on the age of the eggs, and we generally quote A greater than 50% chance if the age of the egg is younger than 30. And then by the time we get to 40, the pregnancy rate drops down to about 20% at best.
0: For any couple trying to have a baby, there are risks to be wary of around fertility treatment and giving birth. Dr. Lowe says it's a conversation she has with all her patients and it's part of the reason why the person carrying the baby and taking on the medical burden of conception should be healthy and well supported.
3: Well when I talk to my patients I talk about what are the health risks of trying to get pregnant and then what are the health risks of when you actually conceived. So The main thing when somebody is going through fertility treatment is that we are pushing the body past their physiological abilities and we are using hormone injections to stimulate the ovaries to produce eggs so that we can either retrieve the eggs for IVF or for insemination or, or we use it for insemination. With the hormone injection, which is called FSH injection, it can lead to a condition called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. It's when the ovaries became too overzealous and produce too many aches. The estrogen goes through the roof. The woman becomes really bloated. She might get abdominal distension get pain, might even get shortness of breath and in some serious cases they can end up in hospital or even in the intensive care. So it's something that we doctors are very cautious about. That's why the women who are having hormone injections need frequent blood tests and ultrasounds for monitoring to avoid that. The other thing that can happen and it's more common. In any fertility treatment is um, the risk of multiple pregnancy as in twins or triplets. So with any ovulation induction, so when we push the ovaries, to function above its physiological abilities. Sometimes the ovaries might pop two eggs out and therefore we could end up with a higher risk of twins. And even when we do IVF and we put in a single embryo, it can still split into identical twins, which is good news or bad news, depending on how you see it. And then obviously when we conceive, the pregnancy can have complications, especially if you are older. The woman that is planning to conceive should be healthy in two ways. One is that you should be cardiovascularly strong. So not just being thin or have high BMI, it's actually just cardiovascularly strong. And then the second thing is also to think about the pre-pregnancy supplements that you should be taking iron, folate, start a Mediterranean diet, stop smoking, cut down alcohol consumption, stop any other recreational drugs, basically treat your body as the temple. During pregnancy, there is always a risk of something going wrong with the pregnancy, as in to be aware of the risk of miscarriages or the development of diabetes during pregnancy, high blood pressure, as well as potential complications with the birth itself. You know we are very lucky that we are living in a modern society, a developed world where healthcare is very advanced and we sometimes take it for granted that childbirth should be a simple straightforward process, but in other countries, I mean, it is still the most dangerous process that a woman can go through, I
0: mean, the labour
3: process. So it's something that we shouldn't just take for granted.
0: As a same-sex couple, Alex and Charlotte had a number of things to think about before starting their family. Very early on, they began having discussions around what they wanted their family to look like and who might carry the baby.
1: Given that we're a same-sex couple, we basically had so many options and so many Mm. permutations of how we could embark on this fertility journey, for example, which one of us would carry, would we do reciprocal IVF? So (laughs) it wasn't so straightforward and it required a lot of discussion and looking inwards. And, for example, I wasn't really sure whether or not I wanted to carry but we talked about it and, and because we're going through the public health system, it wasn't available to us to do reciprocal IVF. So that kind of led us or led me primarily mm. to the decision to go
2: ahead with something that I had a little bit of anxiety and apprehension about. You know, we had to do a bunch of tests to look at our fertility, um, blood tests, things like that, looking at our age. So I think it was based on all of those factors that they said the standard course is three goes of IUI. And if that's unsuccessful, then then we would move on to IVF. And
1: just by way of background, um, I was 35 at the time yeah and I was going to be the one carrying so it was looking at my age and my fertility so yes it was I think we probably had so many options being a same-sex couple that it did seem a little bit like we needed to talk about things more and make more decisions
2: yeah I think something we weren't quite prepared for through the journey of it all. One was how long it was going to take. So we were ready, like we were, okay, we're ready to do this, let's go. And then it took a full year of appointments before we were able to actually try with IUI for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I think we also weren't prepared for the time commitment of when you do start actually trying so there are blood tests in the morning scans um, you need to be available at the drop of a hat to go for the procedure so I think there were so many unknowns that maybe we couldn't really <laughs> prepare for so something like this is so helpful mm. to, to give people a sense of what is involved
1: yeah and for those in our sort of situation that are wanting to start a family, um, maybe have the discussion a little bit earlier than you might expect because it might pay off in the long run.
0: Mm. Genea Fertility works with many different couples, including same-sex and gender-diverse people, offering IVF, a surrogacy program and other treatment options like intrauterine insemination or IUI for short. At least half of the people who see fertility specialists at Genea Fertility don't actually need IVF to make a baby they end up achieving their dream with less invasive treatments. The IUI procedure can take about 15 to 20 minutes, during which a doctor inserts a small vial of semen into the uterus when the patient is ovulating. It's what helped Alex and Charlotte eventually have their baby. They share their experience of getting there through the public healthcare system.
2: Yeah, so the timeline, like from the point that we reached out to RPA and um, had the first appointment with our fertility specialist, it was then about a year later that we were able to try IUI for the first time. I'm sure some couples could get through it within six months, but there were some little, I guess, barriers and hoops to jump through along the way. I think some of those were errors on our end Mm. and some of it was just I guess, how complicated the process was. Part of it at the beginning is that the donor sperm has to go into quarantine for three to four months. You also have to do rounds of counselling. So Charlotte and I had to do counselling, the donor and his partner had to do counselling, and then all four of us had a counselling session together. We also had genetic testing done, And then there were just a lot of, I guess, paperwork steps that I think Charlotte and I, as you know, we consider ourselves kind of switched on and professional people who should be all over that. But, you know, we found we'd go to take the next step and we'd be told, oh, you haven't submitted this form or that form, and that would delay things further. And we found that quite frustrating and stressful. So yeah, it was about a year all up. It's important to note that the experience in private and public healthcare can be
0: very different, especially around waiting periods and managing appointments for things like procedures, scans and blood tests. But the good news is Alex and Charlotte are now proud mums, and though it took a bit longer going through public healthcare, they have started the family they envisioned. We were
2: really lucky. We were successful on the second round of IUI to fall pregnant. But, yeah, after that first unsuccessful IUI, it did kind of open up more so for me a lot of worries about what this could mean in terms of our fertility and the journey ahead. But we were really lucky Mm -hmm. um, that it all happened on the second round.
1: I think our experience was a little bit different because we went through um, the public health system and we have friends um, in similar positions to us who are going through private fertility clinics and I think there's an expediency that comes with that kind of service where things can get done very quickly and there's a shorter turnaround and things could be done in a matter of uh, a few months perhaps.
0: Choosing the right fertility clinic and healthcare providers can save you invaluable time. That's why it's worth preparing early for your baby.
3: My first advice is to plan in advance and don't leave it till you are too old because the older you start the treatment, the harder it is to conceive and then research the clinics that you are going to approach. I often say to my patients that sometimes the first doctor that you see might not be the best fit for you. Don't be disappointed, maybe you need to try a different doctor who might have a different approach and might suit your personality better. The other thing is that you need to do some research on the IVF clinic. There is a website called Your IVF Success. It's actually an independent government-funded website and it provides information on all fertility clinics in Australia and it's got all their different success rate, and therefore you can make an informed decision about which clinic you're going to use.
0: Aside from choosing the right fertility clinic, same-sex and gender-diverse couples thinking about using a sperm or egg donor have some important considerations to factor in.
3: I think that the first thing that we should consider is that there has to be trust between the donor and the recipient. The gamete donation, so gamete means either eggs or sperm, has to be altruistic. So you need to be confident that the person that is donating her or his or their gametes are doing this out of altruistic intention. There must not be any financial reward for the donation. So that's the first thing. The second thing then is that the gamete donor should be of a healthy person, As in, there's no serious medical problems or mental health issues. So we need to have a clean bill of health from the donor. The other thing that will dictate the success of the donation is, again, the age of the donor. So the younger, the better. So as I said, if you have an egg donor who is 40 years old, the pregnancy rate from that donation is going to be much lower. And as I said, maybe about 20% per embryo transfer. Whereas if you have an egg donor who is only 30 years old, you have got like a greater than 50% chance of success. And this is the same for sperm donor. So the younger the sperm donor, the more vital the embryo is going to be. Sometimes we see older males who has got good sperm concentration and good motility, but the resulting embryo might still not be very robust and they might not lead to a successful pregnancy. And the other thing is that we are also concerned with older male donors, older sperm, as in 40 and above, that there is a higher risk of genetic problems arising from that as well. So we would prefer a younger sperm donor if possible. You want the donor to be old enough to understand the significance of the donation and the implication of being a donor. So you don't want a very young person to do that because they might not actually understand how significant that is. You do not want the donor to be so old that they might not be around when the The offspring wants to learn about their biological parent that the person is no longer around.
0: When deciding between a known or anonymous donor, speaking to trusted health specialists and other parents who have been through the process can go a long way. There are some insights and advice around this in free online material, like the resource kit for rainbow families published with VARTA or the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Treatment Authority. You'll hear more about VARTA a little later in this episode. For Alex and Charlotte, they gathered handy insights from other same-sex couples in private social media groups, which helped with some big decisions.
1: It's such a um, crucial first step is deciding whether you want a known donor or an anonymous donor, and that really sets you off on two different trajectories in terms of your journey to falling pregnant. So we had always wanted a known donor where possible because we thought it would be you know, good for the kids to Mm -hmm. have that insight and understanding into where that side of their biological makeup comes from. And we also had in mind um, someone who we were very fond of and is very close to our hearts. So Mm -hmm. it was a pretty straightforward decision for us.
2: Yeah, I would say the main factor in Choosing a known donor versus anonymous donor was just so the kids could know that part of their heritage and have access to that. And then once we decided on, you know, let's try for a known donor, there was really only one person mm-hmm. um, we
1: had in the forefront had, of our mind.
2: Yeah,
1: um, and he's a good friend of ours, yeah. and. You know, obviously having similar values,
2: mm-hmm. having
1: a similar outlook in life and he's someone that we so hugely respect and admire. But
2: on top of that, I guess another big factor for us was so Charlotte's background is Chinese-Indonesian and I'm white and we wanted the kids to look as similar as possible. And so, you know, it was an interesting conversation around I guess, what ethnicity the donor should have. Um, if we had a white donor, you know, mm. one of the kids, you know, would have your background and one would be white. So we were actually really lucky that this good friend mm. is Chinese Indonesian as well. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> So couldn't be happier in
1: terms of, you know, meeting all the criteria we could have ever wanted. Yeah. So we got very lucky and it was a very, um, we were very nervous, you know, um, asking and Mm. um, it was through lockdown and and time was kind of against us in terms of we were losing months because we couldn't have the conversation in person. So we just decided to jump in and do a, a Zoom date and put it to him. And I think what was really important in the process of, making sure he was the right fit and that he was comfortable with it was that we sort of um, listed what our expectations were Mm -hmm. and what the, you know, kind of parameters of this relationship would look like both between us and between him and the children so that he could make an informed decision and um, be fully equipped with our expectations
2: before agreeing. Yeah, I guess that's another big factor is you know, in choosing him, he needed to be comfortable with what his role would be in the children's lives. So the fact that he wasn't going to be a parent, um, he was the donor. And for us, what that relationship we've, you know, talked about looking like is almost like an uncle figure. Um, So still part of the family, but not a parent. Mm. And so if we had any feelings that he was wanting to be a dad, I think we would have, yeah, felt that he wasn't the right fit mm. for us. Yeah,
0: Alex and Charlotte put a lot of thought into details like this, so they as parents and their donor were clear on how their family could work once the baby arrived. They say anyone starting a family like this would find it beneficial to set and discuss expectations early on.
1: And definitely encourage that sort of open communication and we didn't do a contract it wasn't as though we sat down and got him to sign something it was just to make sure that we had in a clear and easy to understand format the things that were important to us and I would encourage that sort of communication just if you can think of even the smaller details just having that thought through and in writing and put to the other persons I think is really important and it also opened up a dialogue for him to talk to us about you know where he was placed and a testament to our donors that he recognized that he's human and he can't predict exactly how he's going to feel once these babies enter into the world and he loves children so he was very responsible in saying if I do notice some feelings pop up you know that's my responsibility and it'll be on me to go and get some help around that and potentially, you know, see a therapist or a counselor or a psychologist. So it really provided us so much reassurance. It was a I think a good way to cover those topics and and make sure both parties felt comfortable with what we were going to do.
0: When having a family with an egg or sperm donor, there are also some legal requirements to be aware of.
1: The most important
3: thing is the altruistic nature of the donation. So you must not pay somebody for the sperm or the eggs and then the second thing that is very important is about the open disclosure nature of the donation so you cannot be an anonymous donor it is very important that any offspring from third-party reproduction as in arising from sperm or egg donation they have the right to find out about their biological parent And then finally, depending on the state where we are working from, there are different state legislation that we need to follow. For example, in New South Wales, a donor can only donate to five families, whereas in Victoria, they can donate to 10 families. In Victoria, the other interesting thing is that so... On top of the Victorian state legislation, there is a separate governing body called VARTA, V-A-R-T-A, which is the regulator of fertility treatment. And VARTA will need to approve import and exportation of donor material in and out of Victoria. So there is like another sort of like guard for, for that. It's another extra step for same-sex couples to access fertility treatment in Victoria because of that.
0: The difference in legislation across states and territories may add some confusion when trying to plan for a family as a same-sex or gender-diverse couple. But your doctor or healthcare provider can be a good point of contact on this.
3: Just be prepared that there are different state legislation. Different doctors working in different states are very familiar with their own state legislation. So you just need to sort of be aware of that and ask the clinic about that. It's not too complex. Just be prepared that it's different.
1: In terms of going through the fertility um, clinic, quite watertight legally, everything's Mm. kind of squared off and both parties are well-protected, there's kind of a a clear understanding, at least legally, around where both parties stand and what they're entitled to or what they're not liable to. So really it was just more of an agreement between two friendships around what we'd like um, outside of those legal definitions Mm. um, on a more day-to-day kind of micro level rather than the macro level.
2: Mm.
0: Now that you know the fertility options and some of the important steps involved, What is all this going to cost? Before starting treatment, having a budget and financial plan is really important. Every couple and hopeful parent is different with a unique set of factors at play. This means the cost of having a baby and how much time it takes will vary. But Dr Lowe says there are two key points to start on.
3: For any same-sex couple starting a family, there are two financial components that they need to consider. Firstly is... How are we going to get the gametes, as in how are we going to get the eggs or the sperm? So, for example, same-sex female couples, we need to think about how are we going to obtain donor sperm. If we have got a known donor, donation is altruistic, so you would save money. But if you are thinking of accessing sperm from the sperm bank, then the cost increases depending on which clinic you are having your treatment from. It can range from a few thousand dollars to ten thousand dollars. And most sperm banks would require a minimum purchase. So for example, Fairfax, which is an American sperm bank, has got like a minimum purchase of five vials of sperm. And if each vial of sperm is about 1,000 or just over 1,000 USD, five vials of sperm would be close to 6,000 USD. And when you convert that, you're looking at close to $10,000 by the time you get the sperm into the country. So that's the first lot of costs that you need to look at. The second component is the fertility treatment. And fertility treatment can be from the least invasive to the most invasive, artificial insemination, will range from two to three thousand per depending on the clinic. And artificial insemination, as I said, has got about a pregnancy rate of twenty percent if you are young and healthy. but you might not get pregnant from the first cycle. So you might spend up to six seven thousand dollars. Just to do artificial insemination, and then if you said I want to do reciprocal IVF, or you want to do IVF because of other reasons, IVF cycles will be in excess of ten thousand dollars, depending on the clinic. In New South Wales, there is a two hundred and fifty pre-IVF testing rebate that people can access. And then in New South Wales as well, there is a one of 2,000 IVF rebate, but only for female applicants. And the other sad thing is that for same-sex couples, some clinics will not consider their fertility problem as medical infertility. And therefore, they do not get the Medicare rebate that heterosexual couples will get. Medicare rebate for IVF is about $5,000, which doesn't apply to same-sex couple. There are more and more fertility doctors that are seeing same-sex couples' fertility problem as a medical infertility and would put their cycle through as Medicare-rebatable. It's an ongoing battle. I think that we have made some progress in terms of same-sex marriage is now legal, so we've won the first battle And the second one is that everyone should be, I mean, same-sex couples or anyone in our community should be treated the same and have access to Medicare just as any taxpayers. And then finally, for insurance options, there are some insurance companies that will cover IVF clinics and there are some that won't. And it's important to therefore check your health fund and see whether they cover for that particular clinic that you are going to be attending. And make adjustment because there might be a 12-month waiting list that you have to go through before you can access your insurance. So it's just all these things that that's why I say plan ahead.
0: We're going to discuss financial planning when having a baby in a bit more detail later in this series. Keep an eye out for episode nine of Fertility Unfiltered. For Alex and Charlotte, taking steps to do some early planning, discuss all their options and develop a vision for their family before they started fertility treatments has meant they've been able to start this chapter on the right foot. Going into it as a team has also given their new family a strong foundation to grow on.
1: Fortunately, Alex and I balance each other out really well. I lean towards being more apathetic, especially in terms of health related matters. And I I don't get too concerned or worried about worst case scenarios, but that means that I'm not thinking, you know, necessarily in a logical and reasonable way, whilst Alex leans in the other direction. So between the two of us, we end up landing somewhere in between. Charlotte's really politely
2: saying that I'm the anxious one <laughs> and she's the calm one. <laughs> but that has been a really nice balance between us. Oh yeah. So me being the more anxious one, um, it means that I would kind of jump into action a little bit more. And Charlotte has been very good at alleviating my anxiety by being the kind of calm, steady presence Um, because I think I have had anxieties that pop up that have, I think, been unique to our experience as a queer couple around having a known donor and their role in our child's life, their extended family's role in our child's life. And I think Charlotte is really good at I guess just grounding
1: you sometimes me. in those moments. Yeah. And um, fortunately, um, those concerns have I think dissipated and with with the showing of, you know, things actually turning out okay. And we've been really lucky. We've had a really good ride even throughout the pregnancy. So whilst those anxieties and apprehensions have a place especially at the beginning and they do help kickstart things and get the ball rolling and ultimately i think we've we've found that everything has worked out
2: really well i guess for any queer couples starting out on these decisions um, would be to try to connect with other queer families and hear about their experience because there are just so many options, you know, known donor, unknown donor, reciprocal IVF, you know, it's really, they've all got their own kind of pros and cons and it's just so unique for each family, what's going to work for them. So I think, you know, it just does really help to have all the information that you need about the options that you could choose from. There's something for everyone on the internet, and I think you'll if you reach out to the,
1: those Facebook groups and your community, you'll find someone in similar situations.
0: A big thank you to Alex and Charlotte and to our specialist, Dr. Tween Lowe at Genea Fertility, for joining us on this episode. I hope this discussion has given you a few more insights on how to plan and start your own family. Regardless of your sexual orientation or gender identity, Australia is home to some of the world's leading fertility specialists. And that means your dream of becoming a parent can come true. In the next episode, we're going to look at the path to having a baby solo. Remember to subscribe to Fertility Unfiltered, which you can find on all listening platforms and our website. I'm Tyler Lambert. I'll see you next time.